Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to Chatting with Sherry. Today, I'm really excited to welcome back an old friend of the show, Stephen L. Sears. He's been a good friend since the beginning of Chatting with Sherry. Uh, in fact, he is one of the people who basically uh, advises me from time to time. He is a screenwriter. He is a TV writer and producer. He is an author. He's so multi-talented. It's amazing. Uh you probably know him best as the uh, screenwriter and producer of Xena, Warrior Princess, but he also did Sheena and Riptide and a bunch of other shows. Very talented. Here's Steve. Hi, Steve. Welcome to the show. Hey there, Sherry. How are you doing? Uh, oh, happy Thanksgiving, by the way. Thank you. Happy Thanksgiving to you, too. Hope you're doing good. I know you're going to play this later, but we are officially, it is officially Thanksgiving Day, and I want to give a shout out to you and to um, uh, everybody who's listening. Thank you. Thank you for listening. Thank you for being a part of this wonderful, wild experience that we're all going through, even the good and bad. But happy Thanksgiving. Yeah, it is a strange Thanksgiving. Very, very weird. I I was talking to you off the show, and it, I watched the, a little bit of the Macy's Day Parade without crowd, without a crowd at all. It's just mm-hmm. bizarre. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, and for those of you who are listening, yes, we we talked probably just to catch up for about a half an hour before we started this, so that the moment that we started it, we had to act like we'd never talked today. <laughs> oh, hi, Sherry. Hi, how are you? We've been chatting. We were talking about that, so I, I just mentioned that I watched of the It's great that we can still we still have that enthusiasm with the festivities that we have to be smart about it. And you know, we'll get past it. Yeah. But we gotta be smart and I'm glad to see at least they they had the parade but they were smart about it. That's yeah. And it it feels the kids can sit in front of their TVs and goggle and look and see the Broadway performers do their thing and all that. They still get it. Yeah, they can still kind of thrill them with the light. Although it is a little weird for me to watch, uh, you know, the football season is a, is a mess. Yeah. For specifically college football and certainly not specifically into my particular team. Um, but it is interesting that when they pull back and you just see those, the empty seats and you hopefully see people spread out. Uh, but this is, this is a part of an adjustment we have to make. You know, it is... It is something we will get past. History is filled with these things, and these moments define us. So we're going to be okay. Um, we will get past this, but you know, for the time being, look, we just take the best we can out of this, and um, 
uh, and we move on. We move on with, uh, with hope for the future. Okay, who were you rooting for for the World Series? Here's a question, because he, he lives in one one state and he's from the other. Curious. <laughs> okay, well, here. This will give you the, the entire basis of my answer. So who was playing? <laughs> L.A. Dodgers against Tampa. Oh, okay, well, darn. See, now I'm kind of mixed, because... Uh, and I know this is after the fact. I know who won. Yes, so, Dodgers. Yay! Uh, Finally! Honestly, <laughs> the, the only sport that I really watch to the excess uh, is college football. The rest of it I watch casually. Um, I, it's, baseball is not my thing. No offense to anybody else. Just because I say it's not my thing, it's not me. I'm slamming it because you are uh, I, I enjoy going to a, to a baseball game, which is mostly sitting there chatting with your friends, looking at everybody through binoculars, waiting to hear a sound of wood hitting something, and then looking out to the field. <laughs> uh, but, uh, you know, several close friends of mine, they live and die by baseball, and they were just going doing backflips about the Dodgers. But <laughs> until you said Tampa, I had the faintest idea who they were playing. You know? uh, but I, I'm going to say, you know, Tampa... Me being from Florida, you would say, oh, i got to go with that. But nah, I'll go with, I'll go with the Dodgers. Okay. okay. So I was rooting for the Dodgers. I just didn't know it at the time. It was, it just, um, it's been a long time. I mean, they were in three World Series. I am a Dodger fan. They were in three World Series that they lost. Um, so it, it was just really, I was like, just please give me something in 2020. Please give me something. <laughs> yeah. My brother and I are second-generation Dodger fans. My dad was from Brooklyn, Brooklyn Dodgers. And when he came to L.A. about a year later, Dodgers followed him and became the L.A. Dodgers. And he raised two little Dodger fans. <laughs> and do you know what the Dodgers were called before they were called the Dodgers? Oh, yes, but I can't... Um, my my brother actually was mentioning it, and he thought it was hilarious, and I can't remember. They called themselves the Dodgers because they were dodging uh, stuff in the street. But I can't... Um, well, there was, a, there was another team, and see, even having brought this up, I've got to think about it. The only reason I know this is that there's actually a picture of the team um, from the early 1900s uh, in St. Augustine, my hometown. And they are pictured on the Castillo de San Marcos, which is the fortress, the Spanish fortress. And I remember it from that, um, because St. Augustine at that time was actually a fairly popular baseball location. A lot of the, a lot of them traveled through there. Uh, but the, the picture there, they were listed as the, um, God, I'm going to say the Senators or the Sentinels or something like that. There was an early name for them that, that morphed into the Dodgers. Because the Senators was Washington, was. wasn't it? Because I remember um, yeah, that's damn Yankees, yeah. and that's what the Senators was. Uh, that was what the movie uh, team that Joe was on was based on, was the Senators from Washington. Right. That's why I keep thinking of like the Sentinels or something. Must be I will find it out somewhere. Somebody will, I'm sure, correct me one way or the other, but I'll find that picture. Okay. I want to um, know. Send it to me, too, because I want to see it. Yeah. But, um, I was in the play. That's why I know that. Um, 
That was my first play outside of school. Damn Yankees. Oh, yes. yes I, I was in a small town, so it was, it was darn Yankees. <laughs> <laughs> well, I was... Even, even if you were in Texas, it'd be the Dagnabbit. Dagnabbit uh, Yankees. Um, Actually, no. Actually, in Texas, it would still be the damn Yankees. Yeah, damn Yankees. Yeah. But um, I was 16. I didn't have a car yet. So my dad had to drive me. And one of the guys that was supposed to be in the show, who was a magician, uh, he worked at the Magic Castle. Uh, I got my first view of the Magic Castle through him later on. Um, anyway, he got a gig. And he told the director, who was one of my first acting teachers, Lou, my dad, should play the commissioner. And my dad said, no. He goes, the last play I was in, I played Mordecai in the school play. For, uh, <laughs> and he goes, I don't want to. And he goes, well, there's no one else. And you're here all the time. He goes, this is what we'll do. We'll write put all of the commissioner's lines on the desk you're sitting on, and you'll just read it. So he finally said yes to everybody. Um, the guy who played Joe, all the people who knew him, he was there all the time, every every rehearsal. They knew Everybody knew him. And so he got talked into it. So because my dad and I were... Uh, every weekend for six weeks we're doing this play. My brother ended up being the stage manager and my mom ended up handing out programs. Yeah. <laughs> so it became a family project. There <laughs> you go. See? Careers were born from that one little interaction. There's actually a, a lot of stories about, um, I don't know, the point of your story, but um, it's, it's funny how a lot of people end up um, working in a stage, film, television, not because they intended to, but completely uh, just by acting. Uh, no, because Dad never went on and did it. <laughs> it depends, you know, it depends on whether you have the opportunity to pursue it or not. Um, I remember talking to um, uh, Jeffrey Willard, who played Kosh on Babylon 5. Mm -hmm. So, you know, the alien with the big triangular head and, you know, wide shoulders, completely alien look. And I asked him, you know, <laughs> basically I asked him one time about the audition process for, you know, for being Kosh, an alien. And he was apparently working in production there. And they needed to have Kosh, you know, the first appearance of Kosh, apparently. And he said he was the only one who could fit his head inside of that helmet, inside of the, the costume. So he ended up being that character for the rest of the series. <laughs> Star Wars. Oh, that's I'm funny. Sure I details of that wrong, but that was basically the story. That's funny though, because um, yeah. I've actually heard that before. But um, that they got the part because they fit the costume. It, it, a few actors have mentioned that. Yeah, yeah. You never know, um, and, but it, but it also is you take advantage of. Oh yeah, and and a lot of I, them were already acting and taking classes and working to become actors. So, you know, well, practically everybody in Los Angeles, especially in those times, uh, by those times, you know, here I have the old part referring to like 15 years ago in the old times. Uh, but 
you know, you couldn't live in Los Angeles without being touched by the film and television industry. And yes, most most of us, um, most people who grew up here went through their phase of going to acting school. Most people who moved out here with a focus on the industry also uh, went through that phase where they would go through acting school and try to get jobs. And many of them, the vast majority of them, did not succeed in that area. But they found success in another area. Uh, somebody else you interviewed on your uh, program just recently was Pat Osis. Oh, Pat. And, and Pat, Pat and I have been best friends since seventh grade. You know? And we were both, we came out here to be actors. And Pat actually did more acting than I did. He's actually, you know, we saw him on several things. But um, Pat, even though he loves artistic endeavors, he is actually a really good artist, uh, literally working with the easel and paints. Um, he, he, the business aspect of acting was not something that his heart was in. He enjoyed the performance. And so because his day job, I know I told you the story, was being as an electrician. His father had taught him to be an electrician. He was doing that as a day job, and now he's the head of you know, studio operations, electrical at Disney Studios, and he's, he's got a house, he's, he's married, he's got stability, he loves his job, and it's like sometimes, you know something, you find your path along the way, um, even though you think you know what your goal is, your real goal is to be happy, I've said this many times, and mm -hmm. he's one of the people I point out and say, look, a lot of people go through that phase. You come out here and you say, I'm going to win that Academy Award. Don't ignore the fact that what you're really trying to do is be happy. So he managed to find that. Uh, but everybody goes through that phase after you come out and I'm going to be an actor. I, I did the same thing. As you know, writing is a total accident uh, for me. And thank God it happened. Because it's my mother's incredible. And you're wonderful. Like the side of me that has to say that. Oh, I mean, yeah, thank you. It's true. I think you're. I. I mean, I. I. I read your book um, that you wrote about working in film and everything and how to be an, a screenwriter. Um, but really, it's about you and working in film. <laughs> but that was a wonderful book, and I loved the uh, movies movies, the TV shows you did, I mean, you're wonderful. Well, uh, thank you. I, I measure the success I've had uh, has been that I found something that really made me happy and, and fortunately, for whatever reason, people were made me uh, I know a lot of talented people who you know, they can't quite make that connection, they don't get paid. Uh, so therefore, they couldn't make it into an actually living. We were very, very blessed in that regard. I ran into the right people. Um, I made the right connections. Um, yeah, so I was I was very very blessed. But I um, one thing I'd always been taught, um, either overtly or just as a part of our family, was that you look for your happiness. You find a way to make your happiness work. It's not the easiest thing to do, and it's never going to be one hundred percent perfect. Um, you know, don't be stupid about it. Pay your bills. You know, don't forget your family. Um, but I was fortunate, so things lined up for me. But I, I did originally came out to Los Angeles as an actor, 
and I accidentally fell into the writing. Suddenly I'm working on TV shows, and I'm thinking to myself, oh my God, why did I not go for this in the first place? This is incredible. <laughs> and I, you know, I still enjoy, I still enjoy acting. I still enjoy doing that. Um, you know, Renee O'Connor asked me to, to be in uh, Macbeth last year, a year and a half ago. Um, she'd always threatened that. She knew I was an actor. She said, we're going to work together. And I'm like, oh, sure. And then suddenly she says, okay, I'm producing this play. We're going to be in it. I'm like, what? <laughs> but I had a ball. We had a great time. It was so much fun. It's funny so. because <sighs> you're, what you said, it have to, I was one of those kids that was raised in L.A., so I was taking acting and dancing and blah, blah, blah. Um, and I did get to work in the business as an actor in, in the 80s, in my 20s. But, and in fact, I f recently found that my agent put I am, I never know how to say that, IMBD, is that the right way? Uh, IMDB. IMDB. I don't know why I always get the D and the B mixed up. <laughs> anyway. Internet movie database. I found out that I'm in there by accident. Yeah. Uh -huh. I was, um, they, my, my wonderful five things is in there and an old picture that actually I've used a few times just for my Facebook, uh, is my main picture. And I was like, where the heck? Does this come from? So I actually sent a note and found out was that my old agent put some, my old agency because my old agent is well dead, but my old agency put it in. <laughs> like yeah. didn't yeah. nobody bother to tell me about it. <laughs> yeah. Well, I'm I'm uh, I, I'm in there obviously because I you know, my credits. If you have credits, you automatically get this as well. Um, so it's probably a combination of your agent and, and getting the credit. Uh, but I will tell you that this entire ride of mine, in, uh, writing and producing and creating and developing and television, still surprises me. I know this will sound perhaps a little disingenuous, but I can tell you after 30-something years of doing this, I'm still shocked that I do it. Um, I've been doing mostly development for the last 20 years. I've been paid for it, thank goodness. Um, but it's mostly been development work. But what surprised me was, I, I did this as a joke. Um, here at the house, we use an Amazon Echo unit. Uh, for those of you who don't know, it's one of those systems that's in the house, and you can tell it to turn on the lights, or you can tell it to play music, and we have it all over the house here. And as a joke, I asked it about me, just as a joke. And I'll be darned, it told me all about me. Really? Actually. It did. Well, it accesses a Wikipedia page, which I have, which also surprised me to have a Wikipedia page. Um, but there I am listening to this thing talking about me and my career. And I, I you know, I'm, this, <laughs> I don't care how this sounds. I'm still the simple little military brat that stops in the middle of a sidewalk, punches down to watch an ant. You know, I'm still that kid. So... As I said, I was very fortunate that things fell my way and that, uh, well, I'm not going to deny what I brought to the table, but I had the right material for it as well and, and the right abilities, that my career has been following that, you know, with the next toy I can play with and, you know, always saying eventually I'll have to grow up and figure out what I want to do with my life, but I'm just going to keep playing. 
And then every now and then I get reminded that I've had a career. Mm-hmm. And that I still have a career. Yeah, you have a heck of a career. And it, 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 like, after working 15 years professionally, I got a letter from the Writers Guild that stated that since I had been doing this continuously for 15 years, I was now, I don't know what it is, they, they listed as some sort of specific status. And I remember reading the letter, and I turned to the girl I was dating at the time, and I was truly in shock. I went, oh my God, I just had a career. <laughs> the crap. You have a career. Go figure. Now, having said that, so that people out there don't think I'm totally naive, it is not an easy career. Far from it is the most, most angrily, demanding, frustrating, illogical, complicated things I could ever have conceived of. But, you know, when you love it, it's by far the most rewarding. So it just it makes all of that work out. Uh, there's my there's my T-shirt. So <laughs> well, Brooklyn Brooklyn bridegrooms. I just thought of it. The Brooklyn bridegrooms. Is that what the name of the Dodgers were? Back in the late 1800s. That one I never Brooklyn heard of before. Oh my god. There you go. The Brooklyn bridegrooms. Yep. Look it up. Back in the late 1800s. <sighs> okay, that's <laughs> one I never heard of. And about the Brooklyn Dodgers, which I was basically brought up and spoon-fed since the time I was a baby. <laughs> yep. There you go. Woohoo! Yeah. <laughs> hey, I like learning. I'm fine with it. <laughs> yeah. Well, there's there's your next uh, your next drink at a bar. You can start that little trivia question out there. <laughs> you'll least you'll have everybody at the bar googling it immediately. That's that's at the very least. There's a there was an old movie called Fitzwilliam with Dick Van Dyke and Barbara Feldon, and it was about a butler who was a thief and a comment. It was a funny movie. It was a comedy, but one of the things they did, they would go to a bar and have a bet about that Samson's hair was not cut by Delilah. And uh, it, 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 he, it would pull the Bible out and read it, and it said, and she sent for a servant to cut Samson's hair, and he, they'd won. And I looked it up, and it was true, and I never knew that. But your story reminds me of, <laughs> reminds me of that old movie. <laughs> because it's like, oh, you know, that's a new bet that they could do to make money. <laughs> Yeah, really. Yeah. A few of those that I have. That's uh, one of the things that, about me. Uh, in my older age, I'm beginning to realize that one of the things that has assisted me in my work is something I never recognized in myself. But I, have, I do have certain OCDs. Research is one of them. So I come up with a lot of like, arcane trivia that you lend me a lot of barbells and put that in. But, uh, they do come in handy everywhere. It's funny because I really love to hear about people researching uh, or knowing have a, a, a love and knowledge of the history of film and television and movies. It fills my heart with joy to hear people like yourself talking about it. 
because so many people who are in the industry don't know anything about it, and it just makes me cry when I hear that. Yeah, whenever somebody says I don't know anything about Hollywood, I, my usual stock reply is, then that means you'll be running a studio. <laughs> That's probably true. But it's just, it's so strange. I mean, uh, with great exceptions such as Martin Scorsese and Quentin Tarantino, who were, both have a, an encyclopedia of knowledge of film and television. Um, but a lot of people don't know anything about what's the, the wonderful world they're working in. It's just weird. <laughs> yeah. Um, but still, you know, again, if it's... I, I'm not going to tell you that I am a... Uh, certainly not that I'm an authority on, on um, vintage film or uh, the classics of film. To this day, I, I am asked repeatedly if I would teach writing. And as you know, I, I do lectures, and I do appearances, and I will be a guest speaker. I have no problem with that. But what I discovered is that since uh, I never learned what I'm doing academically, I don't know how to express it uh, in academic terms. So I'm always kind of amazed when I hear somebody do a, a class on it, they talk about the rising protagonist against the dynamic motion of the conflict underlying the subtext of the blah, 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 blah. Suddenly, I'm, I'm, like, I'm listening to Charlie Brown's parents. Because <laughs> I don't, you know, those things don't mean anything to me. I, I'm one of those that's kind of like, you feel it or you don't feel it. Uh, so I, I'm never going to say that I have that kind of a detailed knowledge. Well, that, well, it's uh, more like Clinton that I like is because he will actually show... Like, when Rod Taylor played Winston Churchill in uh, The Glorious Bastards, he, he, he actually played old Rod Taylor movies to the entire German crew. Rod Taylor told the story. To the whole German crew. So that when Rod came for his week or something of the shoot, all these people in, uh, would, uh, would the German crew would say, Hello, Rod, like they knew him. And nice to meet you, Rod. I thought, what a lovely thing to do. That is a really yeah. kind thing to make this wonderful movie star who, uh, feel at home in this strange little world of <laughs> this new uh, world of film. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, and, you know, actors are all, everybody has a different approach. It's interesting that you mentioned that um, approach. Uh, there are a lot of actors uh, that I've worked with who are extremely accessible. Um, other actors, pretty much when they hit the set, they're so focused. Uh, they're not trying to be rude. They're just focused. And so you don't want to disrupt that focus. In a creative, creative effort, everybody manifests it differently. And for someone like um, Daniel Day-Lewis, Oh, yeah. So incredibly focused. You'll hear stories about how he stays in character the entire time that they do production. That, you know, that even the crew members are told, don't approach him, don't talk to him, don't look him in the eye, all that kind of stuff. And it makes it sound like he's, you know, a jerk. He's not. That is, that is his way of finding that character. Then you have the Spencer Tracy's in the world who are basically, where's my mark? Mm-hmm. And he just is. He was just so brilliant. I mean, so is Daniel Day-Lewis, but Spencer Tracy. Yes, so far. Oh, God. Yeah. 
Anybody who can watch him in uh, Guess Who's Coming to Dinner in the final scene where he gives that incredible speech and is not impressed, I don't know what planet you're on. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. And that's, that's, his, that's his process. Um, now, having, having said that, <laughs> yes, there are some people who are just jerks. I've got no excuse. <laughs> I have <Yeah>. no backstory. <laughs> I have... I have been very fortunate that most of the people I have dealt with in my career, most of them have been understandable. Even if they have quirks, even if they're irritating, I understand, you know. There are a, a very small percentage of people I've worked with who are jerks for the sake of being a jerk. Mm-hmm. And I'm not going to pay them. No, <laughs> I know that. The, the reason for that is because you know, some of them have passed on, some of them are still here, but most importantly, I follow this one little little rule. Just because I had a problem with somebody doesn't mean they're necessarily wrong, and you might not have a problem with them at all. That's true. No trying to poison everything. So. I, I had an experience like that on my first, I had an experience like that in my first film. Just like that. And I won't say who it is. <laughs> Super jerk. You can say it. It, it, was, it was me. You can say it. No. I don't think you were even... I, I, I always balance this out by saying I, I, I like to think that somewhere out there somebody's talking about that asshole Sears that they had to deal with. <laughs> I like to think maybe there's a balance somewhere. <laughs> well, yeah, maybe in another realm or something. Well, in any event. In a twilight zone, you know, can hear Rod Serling's voice. <laughs> and by the way, for, the, for your viewers out there, everything you've heard up to this point is still the intro. <laughs> That's because we like to chat. Um, that's because we just... That's why I enjoy chatting with you. That's why I enjoy chatting with Sherry. Yes, really chatting with Sherry. Uh, but it's true. We just we just chat. That's the whole thing. Anytime I've, I've recommended, you know, somebody to come and talk to you, the first thing I tell them is, this is not going to be like a really formal interview. She's going to ask questions. But it is literally, it's named correctly. It's just chatting with Sherry. Mm-hmm. That's what I I enjoy that I, I when I first started and you know it because you were one of my first interviews I did do the old fashioned have all the interview questions give the guests the interview questions and all that but I found it wasn't me and I just felt more comfortable doing it the way we do it now. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I I've gotten I've obviously had those interviews where people have said questions. And what they very quickly find out about me, as we also previously discussed, I am incredibly verbose. I will do, as I always describe myself, if you ask me the time of day, I will give you the history of the clock. Um, so when I have these other interviews, somebody will say, I have 10 questions. And I will say, well, prioritize them, most important first, and then work your way down, because we will never get to that last one. I just, I, I will just talk it on and on and on and on, hopefully with some interesting anecdotes, but um, most of the time, there are some questions I have remembered that I thought were, um, one question, this is, a, this is an online interview, uh, oh, the question was this, they, they, they were trying to get me one of those like, really weird questions, just to see what the reaction would be, the question was, if you had 30 seconds, you knew you had 30 seconds left to live what would you be thinking? And so what I responded was 30, 29, 37. <laughs> I 
think that's what I'm going to be thinking. Uh, well, twice, believe it or not, twice I've been asked, uh, who was the most famous person I ever slept with? Oh, my God. Really? Yes. Um, this was well, rude. <laughs> I'll, I'll put it this way. The, the first time I was asked that question, I just immediately responded, me. <laughs> the second time I asked the question, my response was, well, the first time I answered by saying me. This time I'm just not going to answer <laughs> and let it be. I mean, that is the most presumptuous rude question. Oh, my God. Well, you know, but look, I invite that. When I do conventions, those of you who have seen me at a convention, and I apologize that you're not going to get a refund, those who have actually seen me get on stage, I don't prepare anything. I just kind of like, you know, kind of just go with it. Um, and I tell people at the beginning, uh, depending on the convention, especially if it's like the Xena conventions, I would do this all the time. I would say, I have been asked every question. So come up with a question I've never been asked. Please, come up with something that you think I've, and I'll make it reasonable. Don't, you know, ask me if I've ever vacationed inside of a whale's belly or something like that, which, by the way, that was just an accident. Um, but ask me any question, any question you think that is reasonable that you don't think I've ever been asked. And so I, I, I encourage that. It always leads to, a, it leads, it leads to an entertaining discussion. I remember I've been to, I have seen you on stage many times. The first time you threw out all your business cards at. Oh, yeah, I Okay. You know the whole story about that? I don't know if I ever mentioned this. I don't remember. I mean, it was a long time ago, but I just, I have the card. So, for the audience out there, um, if you don't know me, then I don't know why you're still listening. Um, and if you do know me, I don't know why you're still listening. Uh, I, I've had a lot of TV shows. I've written and produced a lot of shows. And I was, you know, uh, one of the lead writers and co-exec producer for Xena, the Morgan Princess. So we had a lot of conventions. And we were supposed to actually have our 25th reunion convention this, this year. This year, I was supposed to be there. <laughs> It's been, it's been postponed. It hasn't been canceled. It's just been postponed to next year. So hopefully we'll still do that. But anyway, um, every time you do a new TV show, you basically have a new office. You know, when I, when I first started out, I was working on Stephen J. Cannon Productions. And I worked on, I think, four shows while with that production company. So I, I was actually in the same office. I didn't have to move. But from that point on, every show, you had a different office, a different studio. It's a different experience. So, all of us who do this, we have a box of things. And we also have certain artwork that never gets put up at our house. It goes into a corner until our next job, and it goes into our office. So, there's always a junk drawer, a toy drawer that we have. Uh, because when you're sitting there trying to create, sometimes you need to occupy your hands. You have a Rubik's Cube. Uh, I had a phaser that I would you know, shoot a laser light around the room little push ball that I would bounce off the wall, chattering teeth. I mean, everything. Just junk that's in there that you can play with. So, um, when I left Xena, I apparently took everything out of that drawer and I dumped it into a box. And I forgot about it. So I was doing this convention and I found the box just before the convention. 
So I went on stage with the box, and I said, I haven't even opened it yet, which is true. I haven't opened it. So I said, we're going to open it, and we're going to see what's inside. And so I opened it up, and, you know, we had a great time. I was pulling out, yeah. I pulled out a, it was a centaur. Somebody had sent me a centaur with a hat on it that you know, made it look like me. Uh, that has to do with an online online thing where I used to call myself Tildes, but the, uh, Tildes was one of the uh, centaurs in the series we need to mention. But anyway, so I, I was pulling out all these toys, and at one point I pulled out a stack of my old business cards, which were no longer valid because I wasn't working on that show. And so I ran through the audience, throwing them up in the air. Yep. Everybody. Okay. So I said, here's your souvenirs, here's your souvenirs. Okay. So I, Here's something to take home. That's what you said. There you go. And I, and I get back on stage and I finish up my presentation. And then it's all over and everybody's getting up to leave and I'm getting ready to get off the stage. And one of the Zenites walks up to me and she's holding a card and she hands it to me and she says, you might want to have this one back. And it was a discount coupon to a strip club. <laughs> Yeah. So I said, okay. And I took it back. (laughs) But did you go? (laughs) So happy Thanksgiving. (laughs) All right. uh, We won't go there. It was just casting. I was looking, we were auditioning for uh, something. It was, uh, you know, just like we needed uh, uh, people who knew how to climb poles. That's Mm -hmm, all. mm -hmm. Looking for stunt women. Anyway. I won't tell anyone. Um, anyway, so we're going to get now to the actual subject. Um, I wanted to hear about... We're <laughs> yeah, half hour in. Um, I wanted to hear about what you're working on. You said you were working on development. What are you doing? Uh, a lot of things, actually. And they're all at various stages of development. Um, now, I want to preface this... Um, so that the, the audience out there understands something. Um, what you see as far as film and television is one fraction of what this business is. Meaning that the vast majority of work done in the film and television industry never makes it to the script. It never does. The vast majority of it is development. It's putting together projects, it's writing the scripts, sometimes you do them um, for pay, you're working for a studio, or you're working for a production company. Other times, most of the time, you don't, don't get paid for it, you're trying to sell it. So, what you guys actually see out there is the tip of the iceberg. The, ma- the vast majority of the business is completely unseen. So that's why somebody could, you know, drop off the radar for 10 years, 20 years, and you think they're out of the business, they're retired, or they're dead. And in fact, they were working the entire time. So I've been doing that uh, uh, for, for, yeah, at least over a decade, uh, mostly development. I was doing development and I was working on shows as well. I focused that was actually producing shows. So at any one time, I have three or four or five projects that I'm developing at the same time. Again, some of them for pay, some of them just because I'm trying to get them forward. And some of them I can talk about openly. Some of them uh, have details that I can't talk about at the moment. Uh, I will say that um, 
the, uh, I kind of alluded to this before, the graphic novel that I wrote with Kevin J. Anderson. Yeah, it's really good. Balog X. Thank you. Uh, it's Balog X, and it's about a futuristic concentration camp and a futuristic war. Uh, it's very gritty. It is not, a, you know, it is not a comic book that you hand to your kids. It is very graphic. Uh, it has a nice little novella in the back of it about one of the characters, the Kevin Anderson. And most of you recognize Kevin. Uh, Kevin D. Anderson um, is a top author. He and Brian Herbert write all the Dune sequels. Uh, just one of the things that Kevin does. Uh, we've just been friends for a long time, so we worked on this project together just for the fun of it. Uh, but anyway, um, this book uh, was uh, optioned under a shopping agreement uh, with uh, Francis Lawrence. And for the longest time, I couldn't actually, I didn't, tell people who the agreement was with, uh, but I can't say that. It's with Francis Lawrence, and Francis Lawrence uh, directed three of the Hunger Games movies, uh, Red Sparrow, um, I think he's working on the upcoming Battlestar Galactica movie, um, so he's, amazingly enough, he was one of my favorite directors even before we were approached by them. So Kevin and I are working with him right now, trying to get this place, and uh, turn it into a full-fledged um, movie and a series of books written by Diana Zimmerman. Uh, I don't know if you recognize who Diana Zimmerman is. I, I, no, I don't know the name. Probably, probably not. She was probably a little bit before your time. Um, Diana Zimmerman is uh, during the, the 80s and the 90s you probably saw her on TV. She was one, she was like the number one female magician in the world. Oh. And she was always appearing on, you know, The Tonight Show and all these variety shows. And she was just incredible. Um, when she, and I don't want to say she moved out of magic, but she moved on. Um, she became this incredible businesswoman, business person, I should say. It has nothing to do with her gender. Um, she established like several companies and corporations, really built up her own brand. Uh, at the same time, she was an author. And she wrote a series of books called Can Be. And these books uh, were written for children. And it's, you know, they take place in a fairy world where there's a separation between people who are ultimately perfect and people who are considered imperfect. And oh. imperfects are thrown out of society. They are considered to be less than, than real people. And these are all fairies, by the way. This is a fairy land. There are competing kingdoms for the crown. It's a very complicated um, situation. And the story basically revolves around a character named Candide, who is the heir apparent to the largest kingdom. She, of course, is perfect. She's beautiful. Um, everything about her is perfect. Because if you're not perfect, you would be thrown out. It's literally the law. So what happens is in the course of her coronation, she discovered that she was imperfect and she was going out. And what the whole story is about, it's a story about diversity, about bullying, about acceptance. Um, it is a beautiful, wonderful story in a fairyland where discrimination is considered codified into the law just because of a subjective thing called perfection. And of course, Candide has to come to terms with who she is 
and then she finds other imperfects, and it's a really long range of, I mean, this could be like a five, six, seven year series. Um, but uh, I met her um, in a writing class that Brooks Wachtel was teaching at UCLA. And she wanted to have lunch with me and discuss this because she, I think she kind of wanted me to, to like, you know, help her develop this into a TV series. Well, the long, short, uh, long, <laughs> the short version of the story <laughs> is that um, together she and I put together this really incredible proposal. Uh, we have some very interesting people who are backing it at the moment. Um, people who are in the entertainment industry and people who are not in the entertainment industry. Um, however, these people are also people who believe in equality, believe in anti-bullying. Um, it's really become a wonderful experience. So that's one of the projects I'm working on right now. Really, the proposal is like one of the best proposals that I've ever had a studio uh, to put together, though small part because I was working with Diana. I would uh, love to see that. Um, you know uh, how I well, feel about bullying and that, that. Well, absolutely. That and, and this thing, it just hits it right on the head. So, uh, so I hope that gets done. That is, that is the unfortunate thing is that it's a very expensive series. So we're having to fight that. No, it's moving ahead. So that's another one. Okay. Um, a third project is one that I'm actually developing with um, uh, a couple of friends of mine. Uh, one of them was uh, a casting director on a couple of shows that I did. The other one was a producer that I worked with on a couple of shows. And so um, they approached me with a concept that I kind of liked. And it's a very uh, interesting drama. I mean, this is one I can't tell you too much about. But mm -hmm. it uh, does deal with, uh, with deep psychology. With, um, yes, with uh, people who are extremely troubled, people who are damaged, trying to find out why. And there's more to it than is, than is just on the surface. Uh, as you know, because you've interviewed me before, uh, I love psychology, uh, anthropology, and um, sociology. My minor was in anthropology and sociology. So even though a lot of the shows I've written, produced have been action shows, if you examine them closely, the psychology is, is by far, that's the pool I love to swim in. So this is a very exciting one. Um, that one is not as fully along as it can be. Uh, I'm also writing, still writing, <laughs> my three novels. One of them called Harry O'Fell, one called Tomboys, one called Untitled. <laughs> I like that one, Untitled. <laughs> <laughs> that one, and I'm actually thinking of putting together a collection of short stories that I've been writing. These are prose stories, not scripts. Um, but I'm two short stories away from putting together a collection which, to be honest, is only for my own enjoyment. Usually collections are only done by um, famous authors, and I'm not a famous author. So I'm doing this more for my own enjoyment, but it'll be probably like 10 or 12 short stories that I've written. Uh, at the same time, I have been writing short stories as well for uh, anthologies. Um, I was just asked to do um, a contribute, possibly contribute, a short story for a, a very popular uh, anthology series, which I can't name at the moment, but um, I also um, just had two short stories come out in an anthology called Jeff Sturgeon's Last Cities of Tomorrow. Yes! And that's cool. It's a, uh, 
Yeah, and that's a, that's a, the authors that contributed the stories. I have no idea why it ended these people. I have no idea. It was uh, Mike Resnick. One of his last stories is in this. Jody Lynn Nye, Kevin Anderson, David Gerald. Um, I could go on and on with the list of major authors and me. <laughs> because you're so, a good writer, Steve. So far, so good. I enjoy it. That's the thing. I still enjoy lying to people. <laughs> ultimately what I get paid for. So a lot of stuff is going on. Um, and... Uh, it's, and, and some of the people that I never expected to be working with were talking about working together. Um, I, I will mention um, Thunder Eleven, who created the Sharknado franchise. Uh, he and I became friends. We talked about working on a project together because we thought, wow, what a great sales tool. But, you know, the guy who wrote and produced Zena and the guy who uh, wrote Sharknado created Sharknado <laughs> coming together for some bizarre series idea. Um, so, uh, no. <sighs> so there you go. Other than that, I got a lot of free time. <laughs> You're always working. You, yeah. I, I, oh, I, I also forgot the Harry O'Fell book that I'm writing. That came from the first script screenplay I ever wrote, and I also have signed the deal. Um, I don't know if I can name the two at the moment, but I've also signed a, a shopping deal with that particular script as a. Um, as a TV series. So that's awesome. I have a question as a writer. How uh, thank you. Because uh, I'm a writer. From I'll, writer to I'll a writer. I'll try to refer you to one. Very cute, Steve. What, how, do you, how do you get the right title for your things? Your, whether it's a short story, a, a screenplay, a book, whatever. Um, I'm actually working on a radio play. I'm having a hard time figuring out the title. That's why I'm asking. <laughs> oh, actually, that's, you know, that's an interesting, that's a, God, you know, that gets into a larger, a larger discussion. Um, so let me preface it by anybody who thinks that's, a, that's kind of a uh, softball question. That's an important question. Mm -hmm. But also, it's before also to the question of how do you name the characters. Um, reading a play, or reading a script, you know, the first thing that happens with a script or a play is that it's read. It isn't seen. It has to be read by people before it's produced. So you have to, on the page, create the entire experience they're going to have if they see it, when it is produced, when it is mounted on stage. You have to do that on the page first. And what I, one of the things I do tell aspiring writers is that even the appearance of the way you formatted begins that process. The names that you use and the title that you use also begins the process because those things trigger certain responses from us. And you as a writer have to understand what those responses are because if those responses don't match the tone of what you are writing, it's going to be a disconnect for the reader. It's a very subtle psychological thing, but it is true. So coming up with the perfect title for your play is actually important because the moment somebody reads the title and it is the first thing they're going to read, they're going to have some sort of a reaction to it and you want that reaction to be part of the concert of your play. 
So it's not a bad question. It's a good question. Thank you. Um, for me, sometimes it takes a while before I find the right title. Uh, sometimes it just comes to me. It just pops into my head. Other times I will put, um, I'm one of these people that have to put a placeholder of some sort. So I'll come up with some stupid title that I know I'm not going to use. And then later on as I'm writing, something in the writing process will trigger you know, up oh, wait, this is the essence of what I want people to feel when they start reading this. And then I go back and change the title. Um, you, the way you would come about your title, I can't tell you how to do that. It's going to be specific to you. But I can tell you I always, always try to go um, to what I said earlier. The title is the first thing they're going to read. That title sets the tone. Um, Shane Black, you know, very, very famous screenwriter, um, had some great titles. You know, Lethal Weapon, um, The Last Boy Scout. Those are great titles because they set a tone. Uh, my first screenplay was Harry O'Fell and the Day Hell Throws a Testament. Okay? Because uh -huh. your reaction that you just kind of chuckled at that. It's exactly the tone I want. Because it's a weird, unbelievable type of title. It's a curious title, but it made you chuckle. And that's the kind of character that Harry O'Fell is. And that's exactly the reaction I wanted. Um, sometimes uh, some people default to song lyrics. They'll go and they'll find a song that gives them the same feeling that they feel that their script has. And they might use the title or a line for the song. Uh, I've seen that done effectively. Sometimes it can be done as a cheat. You know, people just get lazy and they have to find something, so they name it after a Beatles song or something like that. Uh, but it's the same rule. Music makes you feel a certain way. Your script has to make the reader feel a certain way. So if it's the same emotional tone, you might find that one line in a, in a song that basically describes that emotion somehow, at least it evokes emotion. You might make that your title. Uh, and the same thing goes for names. You don't want to name a character um, something that will take the reader out of the experience. I was reading something just uh, um, three weeks ago, uh, four weeks ago, that, um, that all the characters were fine, and then the person had named this one character. Um, it was, and I'm not even going to tell you what the name is, but it was a strange name because it was two words put together. Which you could believe, because anybody's name could be anything. But every time I saw that, that name, my mind mentally separated the words. And the reason for it is because the two words that were put together are two words that would normally appear in a sentence as separate words. So I couldn't get past that. It was a hard thing to get past. And my recommendation to her was, you need to change this name because it's what I call a speed Speed bumps will kill a reading experience. Anything that is a speed bump takes your reader out of the story. So, and okay. again, you asked me what time it was. I gave you the history of the plot. No, I just I think it's really interesting. I because usually when I write, the title comes to me either in the first draft or when I'm editing, one of the two. Mm -hmm. This time, it hasn't yet. I mean, I I wrote the first draft. I'm in. I've already finished the first edit. I'm going to be doing a second edit, and I just 
the, the titles that come to my mind are already taken. They're like p- famous plays, and I don't want to do that. And I and so I'm just, yeah. you know what I mean? Um, okay. I, uh, uh, those are the titles that come into my head, and I don't want that. I want something that's right. specific to my story, and that's why I was asking. Well, it's because well, I, I mean, don't know what to do. Maybe song of the period, because it is from the past. It's, it's possible. I would also say sit down one day and just think, just concentrate on what your message is in your play and how it, you want it to feel, what the overall feel of your play is going to be, and then try to figure out what else makes you feel similar to that. That's you know, um, okay. a, a, a wonderful play, well, wonderful only in the sense that it's well written uh, with a wonderful title is Eugene O'Neill's Desire Under the Elms because boy when I hear that title Desire Under the Elms I automatically have a feel mm-hmm. it's just there and when you read the play it's there or, so, or Cat on the Hot Tin Roof and just, you, you go and right yeah, there that, yeah Streetcar Named Desire yeah, yeah. so um yeah, finding that right title. And sometimes, sometimes you don't see it. Um, <laughs> you you mentioned my book earlier, uh, so you know, I'll, I'll take the opportunity for a plug. Yeah, the do title it. of that was well, the title of that book, as you know. Is, <laughs> see, even I have to remember the title. Um, the non-user friendly guide to aspiring TV writers. Not advice and experience from the trenches. Not what you want to know but what you need to know. That actually is the entire title. Okay. It <laughs> now, is a long title, Steve. <laughs> but it puts well, you right there. <laughs> here's the thing. I wrote the title as one of those place markers saying I was you know, it has all the concepts in there that I like, but I, it's not the title. It's just all the concepts in there. So I wrote it down as the concept as a it's kind of like I'll change it later. Unfortunately, my publisher loved the title. <laughs> I just kind of said, "All right, I'll I will default to you." But if you look at the cover of the book, you'll see that the actual title of the book is "The Not User Friendly Guide um, for Aspiring TV Writers." Then, in smaller things, the title is So I just refer to it as "The Not User Friendly Guide for TV Writers." It's funny because. Uh, I, I interviewed an author, and he said that the publisher wanted him to use a title because it hit all of the uh, Google alerts. Uh, okay, that's a marketing idea. That's not a bad thing. If you can work it, if you can do both at the same time. Um, but I don't want... Uh, yeah, mine's a radio play. I don't. That's not what I'm thinking about. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, it's, it's the last thing that creative people think about. Uh, but there is a there is a marketing sense to that, especially today in the online world. Uh, and by the same token, you don't want to name it something that is so diametrically opposed, uh, even though it might make sense if you read the story. But there are some movies and some uh, plays that I can remember the play and the movie, but I can't remember the title because the title really didn't seem associated with the play or movie. And you can love the movie or the play and hate the title. Yeah. Yeah, I don't know. This has basically been, us, been my really long-winded way of saying, I, I don't 
I, I got it, I got it, I got it. It's up to me. <laughs> I got to use my own little brain, I know. I just, you know, I had you here, and you're a My own little brain, there's your title. <laughs> but it has nothing to do with me. <laughs> oh. <laughs> well, it does have something to do with me, but it doesn't have to do with me. Um, we've come to the end, and um, I know that you've been on the show many times, but for those people who have not, oh, excuse me, I almost lost my voice, who have not heard it before, could you give your website your and your social media so people can say hi? Okay. Uh, well, first of all, if you just Google Stephen L. Sears, Stephen with a V, L. Sears, uh, I will probably pop up. That's one of the other things that kind of mystifies me. Uh, my website is Stephen L. Sears, one word, S-T-E-V-E-N-L-S-E-A-R-S.com. Um, if you Google me or search for me on Facebook under Stephen L. Sears, uh, you'll find me that way. Uh, generally on Instagram, Twitter, my handle there is FSUWriter. F is in Frank, S is in Steve, U as in University, and then Writer, and that's because FSU is my school, Florida State University. So I could have said F is in Florida, S is in State, U is in University, whatever. So FSU Writer for Instagram, Twitter. Um, but if you find my website, odds are you'll see the links there. Uh, keep in mind the L is important, and if you want to know why, you can go to stephensews.com. And what you'll find is a website that basically tells you how to clean children's ears. No, really? Ears. I'm not kidding. Uh, one of the things about this industry is your name is your brand. My name is registered with the Screen Actors Guild AFTRA and also with the WGA as Stephen L. Sears. There actually is another writer named Stephen Sears uh, who wrote a, a movie called uh, Dave Makes a Maze. And I, the Writers Guild called me and asked me if I was that person. I just say, no, no, the L is very important. Um, so I, have, I can't tell you how many contracts I've had to send back to a studio with one note, change my name, because Stephen Sears is not my name, Stephen L. Sears. What does the L stand for? I never asked you. Uh, Lee, L-E-E. -E. Oh, that's nice. Stephen Yeah, it's my mother's, um, my mother's middle name. Oh, so it's even a family name. That's cool. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah, I, I came from a family. Yeah, I did. Steve. Seriously. <laughs> I'm not kidding. I, seriously, I did. I had a mother and a father. You did? Better. Really? A pure appearance. Yeah. That's good. Really. I did not spring from the head of Artemis, as most people think. Or come from the water, uh, like Venus. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no, you don't want to see... You do not want to see me naked on a hat shot. Thank you very much. <laughs> okay. Um, thank you for coming on. I love talking to you. Thank you. This was fun. Take care now. Be safe, everybody. Thank you. And thank you for chatting with Sherry. Uh -huh.